1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, we've made our way down past chapter 6 to chapter 7, and you notice something that changes right there. Paul says in verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So what we know is that the first half of this letter, the first portion, the first six chapters of Paul's letter to the Corinthians dealt with problems Paul had with the Corinthian church. Their divisiveness, he wanted them to be of one opinion, to think the same things. There were differing opinions about things, and they argued over these things. And the church was, as I said in the beginning, somewhat schizophrenic. They were divided about these sorts of things. So the first six chapters were problems Paul had with the church in Corinth. The next chapters, all the way to the end, really deal with questions that the church in Corinth had for Paul. And so this begins sort of a new section. Paul begins to answer questions, and he begins with questions regarding sexuality, marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, what happens if I'm married to someone who's an unbeliever, those kind of questions. You can imagine that in Corinth, Paul brings the gospel, and it's life-changing. And you might have, in a family, the husband might get saved and the wife does not. Well, what do we do? How do we handle that? And we're hearing about all these issues in Corinth. Now we're hearing what the gospel says with respect to our sexuality. And now we have questions about that. What is our approach to human sexuality? So first off, I'll say that we are, as a church, never meant to stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich when it comes to issues of sexuality. The church for years has been way too silent and way too prudish and squeamish about issues of sex that you may even be squirming in your seat right now because this is church and we don't talk about these things in church. But God wants to talk about these things with his children. And so here we are saying, God, what do you want to say to us about these things? Now, the interesting thing for me is years ago when I first became a Christian, I started going to men's Bible studies and Tuesday night men's Bible study was a pillar in my life. After the first couple of years, the guy that was leading the study had to go on vacation. And we happened to be doing a book study on marriage called The Marriage Builder by Larry Crabb. Maybe some of you know the book. We were doing that book at the time. And he had to go on vacation and was going out of town for some reason. And he pulled me aside after Bible study one night and he said, Steve, I'd like you to teach the Bible study next week. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. No way. Uh-uh. Ain't happening. So after a little while of coercing, 
I agreed to do it. And then I said, oh, by the way, what's the topic? What chapter are we going to be on? Well, it was a chapter entitled in this book, Body Oneness. It was a chapter about sex. And I was fairly newlywed at the time. And I'm thinking, oh, great. You know, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to teach as a young man? How am I going to teach on this subject? Well, I still feel the same way today. Here we go, you know. I know these are sensitive issues. I know that behind what we talk about, there will be what I say may create even more questions for you. And so I offer you this. If you leave either confused or with more questions, please email me. If you think I've said something erroneously, I've made a mistake in interpretation or something like that, don't go home disgruntled and frustrated and angry. Hey, email me. So we have an open conversation about these things. Maybe it was a misunderstanding or maybe I said it wrong or maybe it came out wrong or maybe you heard it wrong. So I recognize as we get into these private areas of our lives that there are all kinds of issues across the board in this room when we talk about human sexuality. And we'll touch on some of those. Trust me, your spouse didn't send me an email and say, hey, can you talk to my husband about this during your sermon? I often get that. You were talking to me. Did my wife contact you? No, no, trust me. It is the Spirit of God contacting you. So the questions they had as they wrote to Paul, now remember, he has just told them that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So in their marriages and in their lives, they're saying, hey, maybe if my body is for the Lord, maybe it's not for my spouse and maybe we should live as celibate in marriage. Or we should live as what they call a continent in marriage. Meaning we're married, but we're not having sex in our marriage. And they thought that was maybe a spiritual progress. Maybe spiritual, more advantageous, closer to God when we live that way. And there were those, remember, in the Greek culture, they believed that the body didn't have spiritual ramifications. The body had its desires and its pleasures, but it didn't really matter. What mattered was the spirit. And so that caused two different and distinct approaches. One was, hey, if our body has pleasures... Let's just satisfy it. Doesn't matter what we do with it. Let's just do it because it's really our spirit that matters. But the other approach was, well, our body has all these desires and these desires are evil. And therefore, we need to deny our body its pleasures. And we get the monastic lifestyle that comes out of that way of thinking. And so this is their question. Number one, if the body is for the Lord and if these things are in our culture so twisted and evil. Remember, they lived in a sex-saturated Corinthian culture. Even if you look at ancient Greek pottery, ancient Greek relics, you'll see that even their dishware was ingrained with and engraved with sexually oriented pictures and illustrations. So this was a sin city, so to speak, as we've talked about. So then maybe they're saying, you know what, in light of that, maybe to be different as Christians, maybe we should just renounce sex altogether, even in marriage, and live as single or live as married, but sexless in our marriage. So Paul has to address these questions that they had. And I can sum it up this way. A new monk arrives at his monastery. He's assigned to help the other monks in copying the old manuscripts by hand. He notices, however, that they are making copies of copies and they're not referencing the original material. So the new monk goes to the head monk to ask him about this. He points out that if there was an error in the first copy, that that error would be continued in all the other copies. So the head monk says... We have been copying from copies for centuries, but you make a good point, my son. So this head monk goes down into the cellar with one of the copies to check it against the original. Hours later, 
Nobody has seen him. So one of the younger monks goes downstairs to look for him. He hears sobbing and weeping and crying coming from the back of the cellar, and he finds the old monk leaning over one of the original books, crying. And the young monk says, what's wrong? What happened? And with tears in his eyes, the elder monk says, the word is celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) And I think that sums up what Paul is addressing with the Corinthians. They want to know Paul. What's the word on sexuality? Is the word celibate? Or is the word celebrate? And do you know how Paul is going to answer that question? Yes. Yes. If you can be celibate and single, enjoy that. But if you can't be, then enjoy marriage. They're both spiritual. So he begins again, verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So Paul had written them a letter, which we don't have. They wrote him back, challenging probably some of his positions and clarifying some of his teachings. And now Paul has set the stage addressing sexual immorality and the role of their body and proper philosophy of their body. And now he begins to address and he starts out with these sexually related questions and he says, Now, concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if anybody reading an NIV version by any chance, if you're reading an NIV version, it might say it is good for a man not to marry. And that misses the whole issue, the whole point of what Paul is talking about. The phrase to touch a woman is a well-known Greek idiom. It's used all throughout Greek literature. Plato uses it. Aristotle uses it. And it always, always, always refers not to marriage, but to sexual intercourse. Even in Genesis 26, Proverbs 6, we see the same type of reference. So they wrote to Paul about abstinence. Paul, we think that we should take, even in marriage, a vow of abstinence, a vow of celibacy. And that's the way to go. And Paul doesn't say, no, 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 don't do that. Paul says, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Singleness or abstinence is a good thing in two situations. Number one, if you are unmarried, abstinence is a good thing. Abstinence is the only thing if you're unmarried. And if you have the gift of celibacy. And we'll talk about these things going forward. So if you don't meet those two criteria, then That's what Paul addresses next as we go on to the next verse. He says, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, that's our word pornea, which is where we get pornography from. That's just a general word for sexual immorality. Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. And by the way, the NIV would say, let each man get married. He's speaking to married couples who are making the decision to abstain from sex within their marriage. And he's saying to them, no, 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 don't do that. Let each man have his own wife. And you see that the word have is idiomatic as well. He's not speaking of get married. He's speaking of have each other how? Physically, intimately, sexually. And let each woman have her own husband. So it sounds like on first read, maybe Paul is just making a marriage concession. If you're too weak to be celibate, if you have to have a sexual outlet, then, well, go ahead and get married. And as if marriage is the only reason for marriage is a sexual outlet. And that's an unfortunate understanding of this verse because he's already speaking to married people. And he's saying to them, hey, because of sexual immorality, if you're married, don't try to live celibate. You're married. Enjoy the pleasurable aspects 
of the sexual relationship within your marriage. So a couple of things as we go through to address what it looks like to have a healthy marriage and a healthy marriage, intimately speaking. Number one, I might point out that a healthy sexual relationship means having a sexual relationship. Can I say that again? A healthy sexual marital relationship means having a sexual relationship. Remember, Paul is dealing with abstinence in marriage. They're saying, hey, my body's for the Lord. It's not for you. So I'm going to dedicate my life to the Lord. This is more spiritual. And that's what we're going to do, especially in a culture saturated with messages about sexuality. Maybe you know of the Shaker movement. Anybody heard of the Shakers from 1700s? They professed no marriage, no sex, and little physical contact between those that were participants. And therefore, they had lots of problems with good reason. But I've never met with a couple in counseling that's come to me and said, Pastor, my husband and I, or my wife and I, we just really want to be closer to the Lord, so we're going to abstain from sex. I've never had that happen. Never had somebody come to me. Usually the problems, I have a couple come in for marriage counseling. He sits on the couch over there. She's as far as she can get pinned up against the other side of the couch. And I can see already we got some problems here. You can't be intimate if you're sitting that far apart when you come in to talk to me. So if I ask the question, I don't always, but oftentimes I do. So tell me about your sex life. Tell me about your intimate life. And they both just begin to go, oh, it's not good, pastor. Many couples from research I did quietly suffer in sexless marriages. So many, in fact, that it's the top searched marriage complaint on Google, according to the data scientist Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Searches for sexless marriage are three and a half times more common than unhappy marriage and eight times more common than loveless marriage. Dennis and Barbara Rainey said, we believe that sex is a beautiful God-given desire that can bring a husband and wife together in oneness. We also believe sex is a thermometer that measures the depth of the relationship. Its presence or absence often indicates the level of commitment and intimacy in other areas of your marriage. So if you're in a sexless marriage or a marriage that is struggling in that area, it probably most likely indicates problems in other areas in your marriage. And so my question to you all is, those that are married in here, how would you describe the sexual intimate aspect of your marriage? Healthy? Unhealthy? Could use some work? Could use some attention? What are the issues that create these problems in marriage? Boy, you guys got really quiet all of a sudden. (laughs) What are the issues that lead to this difficulty? Busyness, wrong expectations, poor communication, difficult sexual history, current usage of pornography or past uses of pornography. Can I remind you that what Paul said here? He said, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have, enjoy the pleasurable sexual relationship with his wife or her with her husband because of sexual immorality. That's the word pornea. So a second thing you might notice about having a healthy sexual relationship is it never includes pornography. In fact, it destroys the need for it. 2006, estimated revenues for sex-related entertainment businesses were just under $13 billion in the United States. Happy marriages, healthy marriages, embracing marriage puts the pornography industry out of business. And we want to point fingers and yell, well, why do they do that? People do what they do because there's a market for it. $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the internet. What could you do with that money? On one year, on one porn website, and there are thousands, 
we as a people consume 4.6 billion hours of interaction. One site, one year, 4.6 billion hours. How many lifetimes is that? And we think, oh, well, that's just a problem in the world, not a problem in the church. Think again, one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 U.S. church leaders. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to me and to you and to us is that our sexual desires are real and they're God-given. They're not dirty. They're appropriate. I mean, imagine when Adam, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So he parades all the animals across the scene there, and Adam names them all. And among all of them, there was not a one comparable, compatible to Adam. Praise the Lord for that, right? Thank you, Lord. And he creates, he builds Eve out of his side, out of Adam's rib. And Adam makes this wonderful declaration, whoa, man, I think I'll call her woman. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I say. Good-looking woman. And they were naked and not ashamed. And by the way, some that have grown up in a Catholic tradition may have erroneously been taught that the original sin was sex. And that can taint a couple's ability, that can taint an understanding and damage the potential enjoyment of sexuality with a couple. Are you getting the message that God created us to enjoy sexuality? He's given us parts and sensors that have a heightened awareness to those things. It's not just something we have to get through just for procreation. It's for unity and enjoyment. Yes, you are in church this morning hearing these things. Ephesians 5 quotes the same thing that Paul quoted regarding a harlot when he quotes Genesis and says, the man shall leave his father and mother, the two shall become one flesh. And Paul said, when you join yourself to a harlot, become one flesh with her. That's a sexual reference. Paul in Ephesians 5 uses that same reference in Genesis and says, I speak of Christ and the church. Something about our sexual intimate relationships as husband and wife in a protected and committed relationship speaks to our relationship between Jesus and us. We are of all the creatures on the face of the earth. We are the only ones that enjoy intimacy face-to-face. And that is how God wants us to enjoy intimacy with Him, face-to-face and transparent and vulnerable. And that's why it only fits within a committed relationship of marriage. So verse 3, Paul continues to elaborate on this. He says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The word render is in the present imperative. This is a command. Keep doing this. Keep rendering this. And again, the word render is to pay what is owed. When you said, I do, you also said, I will. And I will continually. Render. Continue to pay what is owed. Continue to give the affection. See, sex is not about what we get, but what we give. That's one of those things in a healthy Sexual relationship in a couple, in a marriage, will always be mutually giving, not demanding. And that's why Paul says this. He doesn't say, let the husband get from his wife. Let the husband demand from his wife. Let the husband criticize his wife. 
It says, let the husband give to his wife. Now, I like that. Husbands, your wife is not wired like you. Can I overstate the obvious? Your wife is not wired like you. She is not slave labor. She has needs too. Wives, amen? You can't criticize her and blame her and expect her to be excited to jump in the sack with you. She wants you to listen to her, compliment her, nurture her, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Now listen, guys, if she has a wounded sexual past, be patient and never, ever jeopardize trust. Years ago in my marriage, I learned a verse from the Song of Solomon, your wife is a garden locked up. Trust and patience and gentleness are the key to unlocking that garden, especially if she's had a past with sexuality, whether it's abuse or whatever might have happened in her past. She's going to come and they're going to enter into marriage. You're not going to know what to expect. And she's going to be challenged in that area to be open with you. And years of faithfulness and trustworthiness and protection and care and love, you can watch your wife blossom and watch her give herself to you more and more and more. Criticalness, demands, all of that will watch her just crawl into her shell and you will not enjoy her to her sexual fullness. And guys, by the way, I have it on good faith. A little housework goes a long way. One guy tracked it like this in his marriage. This is called the seven stages of the married cold. A husband's reaction to his wife's cold during seven years of marriage. First year. Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all the strep throat going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. Year two. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough, and I've called Doc Miller to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl just for Papa. Third year. I didn't write this. Third third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something. Have we got any canned soup? Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and got the dishes done and the floor finished, you better lie down. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal all evening. (laughs) Seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Husbands, render to the wives the affection due them. Notice, it doesn't say the sex due them, although that's implied. Render to your wives the affection due them. That can mean anything from just sitting and listening and paying attention to a back rub to a foot rub. I mean, she doesn't speak the same language you speak. Men are like microwaves, they say, and women are like crockpots. They got to stew a little bit. You've not heard that before? Yes, you've heard that before. But now we turn it over to the wives, and he says he doesn't end there with husbands. He says he's got something for you two wives. Wives, render to your husbands the affection. Do them. We're a lot easier to figure out. We got one button. Wives, it says don't fix your husbands. Wives, you have to recognize your husband is visual and his sexual desires might be greater than yours. You have to be his encourager overall, not his critic. There's a woman at work that he works with that will be glad to uh, compliment him, that will be glad to tell him what a good job he does at work, to affirm him and be interested in him. Sometimes you have to think, what in another woman would attract my husband? Years ago... I got a letter, showed up in my desk at the office. This is when we were still down in Palmyra. This letter just says my name on the envelope. 
And I go in my office and I open it up. And it begins with, Dear Steve. And it starts to lay out in the letter how this woman who wrote the letter said uh, how much she enjoyed seeing me in a certain black shirt that I used to wear. And she thought it was very attractive. And she loved my sense of humor. At that point, I knew something was up. Just began to compliment me. And she thought I was doing a great job as a pastor. And just so proud to know me. And enjoyed being part of the church. And then the last line was, Oh, I've got to go. My husband is pulling in the driveway. And I read the letter. I know, that was my... I read the letter and I, I take it outside and Frank is there and Kay's... I'm like, what do I do? Do I tell Helga? Do I not tell Helga? What do I do? And they're giving me a... Oh, what do I do with this? Well, guess who wrote the stinking letter? Helga! <laughs> but what a beautiful moment for her to just express in that anonymous way, just to say, hey, here's what a letter from another woman might look like. Why can't I write that letter myself to my husband? Look, here's a general principle to remember. Just overall, where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be. Your time, your attention, your affection, where your treasure is, that is where your heart's going to be. Your heart is so fickle. And it follows. Your heart is a follower So always beware, beware of giving attention in the wrong places. And I'll get to that a little bit later. Martin Luther said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let the husband make the wife sorry to see him leave. Verse four, the wife does not have authority. That's the word exousia, governing authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. This could be a scary verse if it weren't in the context of Christian marriage. I ain't giving authority over my body to that guy or to that woman. I'm not doing that. But remember, in the context that Paul is speaking of, he's saying that you can't, in a marriage, unilaterally decide to abstain from sex. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. You don't have authority. When you got married, you gave up autonomy. You've now entered into a union And it's not about autonomy. It's about unity. You no longer can make a decision sexually on your own. You have to make this decision as a couple. And that's what he says here. Healthy marital sex involves a giving even of my body. And again, I know, I know, I know, I know where some of you have come from. And that, for a number of reasons, medically or because of a sexual history, can be a very, very touchy area, especially where there's been abuse. So my challenge and Paul's challenge for us is to work that out. What Paul is saying to you today, maybe the message is don't ignore it. Whatever keeps you from entering into that pleasurable sexual relationship with your spouse, there's something keeping that from happening, then you've got to work that out. Christ is there to help you work out and work out the shame of a sexual past so you can embrace what God has given you now. Don't live in that past. Don't live in the guilt and the shame of the past. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. If any woman is in Christ, she is a new creation. But working out some of the details of the past can be challenging and take time. But that caveat being said, your body is for the appropriate and responsible pleasure of your spouse. Have you read the Song of Solomon? If you haven't, I highly suggest it. And the question is for us, then do we care for ourselves in a way 
that says, this body of mine, I'm going to care for it in a way because I want to give it to you? Or do we stop caring for our bodies about the year two after we got married? I texted Helga. She's down in Florida right now. I said, Helga, is there something you want to say to the ladies today? And she said, tell them to dress to impress their husbands and not somebody else's husband. That's what she says to you guys. And I want to say a note to the young girls in here, the unmarried girls. Don't give authority over your body to someone who is not committed to you maritally. Gordon Fee, Bible commentator, said sex is unitive. It is bonding. You can't love someone promiscuously because you are using their body for your pleasure. And if two people are engaging in mutually pleasurable sex without commitment, then they are simply using each other for their own pleasure. And so Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So healthy couples make sexual decisions together. Hey, couples, it takes two to tango, right? And so Paul says, don't deprive. And literally in the Greek, it would be stop depriving. That's what they were doing. The husband or the wife was saying, hey, honey, listen, I love you, but I'm choosing to give my body to the Lord only. You can't decide that on your own. So Paul says, don't deprive one another. Don't neglect this in your marriage. The word consent is symphonos, which means to sound together. We get symphony from that. See, a marriage without intimacy places the relationship and the unity and the bond at risk. Again, I know there are exceptions. I know there are exceptions. Medical reasons, health reasons, accidents, things like that. But again, you can creatively figure out how to have a mutually pleasurable relationship with your spouse as a team, as a partnership, in whatever situation you're in. The key is don't give up trying. Don't write it off as if it doesn't matter. Sam Louie points out in a Psychology Today blog post called I'm in a sexless marriage. He said, a sexless marriage is a vulnerable marriage. Sex promotes the flow of oxytocin, the chemical that promotes feelings of bonding. Healthy couples, look at else Paul says, healthy couples know sex is a weapon they use against Satan, not against each other. Oh my, no using sex as a weapon. No using sex as a punishment. No withholding it as a way to manipulate. A woman named Mo Issam, a convo at Liberty University, said sex is a weapon that when used in marriage is a weapon against the enemy. Sexlessness in marriage is an invitation to the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy a marriage and a family. You know who said that? I did. I just said that right now. Sheila Ray Gregory in the book called The Marriage Bed said, Satan likes marriage without sex as much as he likes sex without marriage. Why does the church only condemn one of the two? Satan is that woman your husband works with. She never treats him like a child. In fact, she likes his ideas, compliments his abilities. Satan is that man that your wife sees at the gym, who pays attention to her, who listens to her, who she can approach and talk to. Have you been watching the news lately about the Me Too movement? I mean, we come to church, you say, oh, how can we talk about sex in church? It's everywhere. And Satan is having a heyday in all kinds of places. And Paul says, for that reason, because sexual immorality is real and sexual desires are real and marriage is the real place for them, if it ain't happening in marriage, you put your spouses in danger to find sexual pleasure somewhere outside the marriage. 
And verse 6, he says, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. So Paul says this whole single versus married thing, Paul is a big proponent of being single. If you can do it, then do it. He says, I say this as a concession. Singleness is a concession, not a commandment. Paul would never command us to be single. But for him, Paul says, hey, it'd be great if everybody could live as I live. So the Apostle Paul, we know, is single. But we also know or infer about the Apostle Paul that at some point in his life, he was married for two reasons. Number one, he was a Jew, and the Jews took be fruitful and multiply as a commandment. And second, he was also a Pharisee and on the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling body, and they were required to be married. So it's pretty universally believed that at some point Paul was married. What happened to his wife? We don't know. Either she divorced him or left him when he became a Christian, or he's a widower. She died somewhere along the line. But for Paul, being single has been a huge advantage for ministry. The guy travels 10,000 miles, plants churches all over the world, and doesn't have to be bound, he'll say, by a wife. He doesn't have that to think about. He doesn't have to care about. And he'll elaborate on these things further in chapter 7. So being single, being celibate, is a gift. The word gift is charisma. The same word used of spiritual gifts. Somehow it didn't make the list in chapter 12. Speaking in tongues, gifts of healings, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, celibacy, that didn't make it into the list for Paul. But he does say it here. It's a gift. So if you think about that gift of celibacy and you go, that doesn't sound like a gift to me, then you probably don't have the gift. Then for you, the ability to be married is a gift. So both of them, the singles don't look down on the married people and say, you weaklings, y'all need sex. How could you be more like us? We're in total self-control. And the married people don't look down on the single people that are making a choice to be single and say, why are you so defective? Why can't you find yourself a spouse? What's wrong with you? See, there's a very low view of singleness in society. We look at someone who chooses to be single and say, well, what's wrong with them? But Paul says, actually, being single is a great thing. There was the whole monastic lifestyle that happened, the monastic push, and I'm going to escape all my body's desires, going to escape the pleasures of the flesh, and going to run away and seclude myself with a gender-specific community. But the problem, you take your brain with you, and you can't escape from your desires and your thoughts in your mind. So Paul, do you think he's serious when he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself? What if all men were as Paul? Well, the human race would die. So Paul's using a little bit of embellishment here when he says, hey, it'd be great if everybody could just serve the Lord with their whole life, and that'd be wonderful. But he knows it's not true, it's not going to be. He knows that some are not called to it. And then finally he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, so the unmarried single people that used to be married. And one commentator argued that this was male widows, widowers. I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because he deals with widows, but this is a masculine word. But it could just be people that have been divorced. So he says, I say to the unmarried or the divorced and to widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Unmarried. If you've been through a divorce, then hey, if you can stay unmarried, then stay unmarried. Be single to serve the Lord. We have a whole ministry here available to God. That's what it's called, available to God. It's a singles ministry. It's not a hookup ministry. It's not a find a husband ministry. That may happen, but that's not what it's for. It's to say, hey, we're single. We don't have the constraints of life and family that other people do. 
we've got more time and freedom to serve the Lord with our whole lives. Our body, mind, spirit, all for the Lord. So that ministry exists here. But, verse 9, if they cannot, and others might translate, it's just the word not. So the argument would be, but if they do not, if they are not exercising self-control. In other words, if you're out visiting the temple prostitutes at Aphrodite's temple, and you're not exercising self-control, then get married. If you're struggling, you can't say, I'm going to be single, but then struggle with sexual morality. you got to figure out how to be in a relationship so you can get married, so you can enjoy the sexual pleasures of marriage. But that's going to mean you're going to have to be a little bit selfless in your life. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So the final point about marriage and sex is marriage provides a focused outlet for sexual passion. You see, if you are involved in sexual morality, if you're not married but still out there involved sexually in the world, whether it's pornography or whether it's multiple partners, whatever it is, you spread your fire out and it creates a forest fire and that fire ends up consuming not everybody else but you. Sexual passion is consuming. And what marriage does is it gives a place where sexual passion can be focused and directed. Remember, you've got passions like the passion for air. We need to breathe, right, church? If you don't breathe, what happens? You need to drink water. You need to hydrate. If we don't hydrate, what happens? All right? We have sexual passions. If you don't fulfill your sexual passions, what happens? You don't die. So, you know, you got to work out details in a marriage of frequency and those kind of things. you got to work that out. But if you don't have sex, you don't die. I've never been to a graveyard. I said, here lies Bob. Guess what his problem was? So Paul says, look, it's better to settle down and contain the passion and focus that fire than to have a fire in your life that is burning out of control. We can no longer ignore this because it diminishes the glory of God on planet earth. It diminishes the the vitality of our relationship as a husband and wife. Christian couples should be the most satisfied sexually, not the least. And we should be demonstrating the most love, vibrant love between us. And sexual lives is part of that. A marriage commitment helps to bring sexual passions into focus. 